The BBC drama Peaky Blinders is now in its third series and is still going strong. Set in Birmingham in the 19th century, it's won BAFTAs for its direction and photography. In this masterclass, director Otto Bathurst, production designer Grant Montgomery and exec producer Jamie Glazebrook reveal all. It was chaired by Sarah Putt. Jamie, can we start with you just to kind of talk about the development, the early days, how the project came about in the first very, place? You'll find me just saying again and again, it's, it's very much stemmed from the mind of Steve Knight. And um, We met with Steve, Karen and I met with Steve about another project. We had an hour-long meeting and for various reasons that project didn't happen. And then Steve called and said, well, there's something else I'd love to speak about. And he came in, and uh, it became clear that this is something he'd been thinking on for you know, 10 years, maybe 20 years. Um, and I just remember the passion in, with which he spoke. It clearly was not just a TV idea. It was uh, an idea that was incredibly important to him. Uh, and it was stories that he'd been told by his family was part of the um, tapestry, I think. The idea of, of threading a um, fictional story through quite an incredible historical past that's not really talked about. The sort of moment in the 20s where there was revolution going on elsewhere in Europe and what was going to happen here and people were quite freaked out. I, th- I, th- I remember the first piece of paper he gave to us started with the image that I think his grandfather had told him about of a gun turret being put in a street in Birmingham thinking that's how extreme things got, that the idea there was collapse was Which is so little known. No, no, incredible. So, um, and then moving on from that, I think he was very, very keen on the idea of why why do the Americans get to mythologise their past and we don't? Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, looking, cutting to what we just saw, you know, one of the things that these two amazingly talented gents did was really make good on that mythologizing. He said at one point, I want it to be as if you're watching it from the point of view of a 10-year-old boy and, and the women are beautiful and the horses are amazing and the cars are glistening and he didn't want it to be gritty. He wanted it to be magical. Um, so he came, so, so actually going on about the process, he spoke to us and obviously we said, this sounds incredible. And he mentioned another idea. We went straight into the BBC who <coughs> just said, fantastic, which one do you want to do first? And he said, Peaky I know, but this does not happen usually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in a sense, this is a bad, yeah. it's a really it's bad the thing to say. The it really the is the rule, exception. Yeah. Then Steve wrote a script that we just felt was so beautiful. Often in that thing, then you, there's note giving or, or they write a treatment or something. Steve went and said, I want to go straight to a script. We thought it was so wonderful, we gave it straight to the commissioning editor. And usually they say, well, I've got a few thoughts. She thought it was so wonderful, she gave it straight to the head of drama. And so within months, we were sitting around having breakfast with Ben Stevenson, and he said, I've just, at this point, one note, just could you make the antagonists appear a little bit early in the script? Um, so it was, this is totally, all the way through, myself and my boss, Karen, were just saying, this is not, this experience will never be repeated again. Um, and it's sort of been the way through, because we've managed to bring on board the best possible people. And, and how did you, so then you had, you had scripts, mm-hmm you started looking for kind of key collaborators. Yeah. Well, one of the first things that happened, that, that Karen and I, our, our background is on comedy, <laughs> and um, we obviously were talking about doing a drama, but we didn't want to make any sort of rookie mistakes on such a beautiful, beautiful script. And so um, we spoke with BBC, and we all agreed, well, why don't we buddy up with um, a drama production company who has got ex- experience? We met a few. We absolutely adored Tiger. They seemed to be very sympathetic to the 
the writing and to the work and to how, what the problems would be and how to overcome them. Which is really the only problem was you had this amazing script and it's like thinking, if we mess this up, <laughs> that would be terrible. Just, just as a point of not business, just in terms of how, you know, you've got to do justice to this thing. And so then it, everything started happening faster and faster. The script was out there and I think Killian's agent showed it to Killian and it came back, he would be really interested. We looked at possible directors was the next step and very quickly Otto was, I mean the many things we adored about Otto which he exceeded our, our highest wishes of what, what could happen but um, we loved the fact that there was a humour to Otto had, had done things that were genuinely funny and he understood humour. We loved the fact that this was never, never going to be another period drama. He wasn't going to approach it like that. You could just see from his work he, he approaches things from a very um, visceral and um, uh, exciting way. I remember in the first conversation we had, you said, well, I want to be in with the characters. And that's what Steve is, in with the characters. So you're feeling it. So everything. And then I think what we didn't know was quite how spectacular you were going to make it. <laughs> you didn't come and say... It's interesting, a lot of people say, oh, it's the ambition is great and, and the scale. But you didn't come ever and talk about that, in fact. And, and, and in a sense, I think that that's one of the many things that you did. But it was the fact that I, we really thought, you'll get to this, the, the humanity of, of this incredible story. So, Am I just going it. on now, by the way? Do you want me to No, no, that's, that's, it's, it's <laughs> lovely. It's, it's <laughs> setting the scene. Yeah. And at what stage... Did you guys find each other? Did you come well, to you Grant? found Grant, so you could probably speak about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're doing something um, as sort of grand and as spectacular as it, I have, I've got a kind of slightly scary saying it in this building, of all buildings, actually. <laughs> I've got a kind of sort of pathological hate for most period filmmaking, um, especially in the UK. Everybody kind of goes into... Oh, well, actually, since I am in this building, everybody sort of seems to start trying to want, want to win a kind of BAFTA Craft Award. And so everybody kind of goes into this kind of super precious, super kind of sort of, you know, we've got to do it perfectly and every single thing has got to be perfect. And, you know, and the whole point of this was that we wanted to mythologise it, as Jamie said, you know, and, 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 you know and, and, and turn the volume up a bit, you know, beyond truth. Um, and so it was a question of finding a designer, you know, who, who wasn't going to be slave to kind of tra the tradition of British filmmaking. I've never understood why filmmakers change their method of filming depending on the date of the story they're telling. I just, I just don't get that at all. You know, whether you're telling a story about cavemen or, or aliens, you, know, you use every single possible tool you've got to make it as accessible and as visceral and as alive and as you can. So it was really important to me to find the designer who, who, who got that and, 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 and understood the references that I was using about westerns. And, you know, I just wanted to make it rock and roll. That was really... It was, I mean, yeah, it was, it was... I mean, it's turned out well, but, I mean, but, but the brief was quite simple. It was just like... I mean, I knew exactly what I didn't want to do. Um, and, and, and that was kind of... No's are just as good as yeses. You know, if, if, if you've got nine no's, well, that's... Out of, out of ten, that means you've only got one other path to go down. And that was kind of a lot of what Grant and I did. It was like, we definitely don't want to be that. We definitely don't want to be that. We definitely don't want to be that. That stinks. You know, um, you know and then actually, God, that's a cool movie. We love that. We, we spent a lot of time watching Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Heaven's Gate became our kind of big sort of um, tentpole kind of um, 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 reference. 
And so, yeah, Grant was just, you know, he's, he's, well, he's incredible, just look at the work. But I mean, it was, it was about finding somebody who, who, who respected history, but also had a very, very um, considerable disrespect for it as well, and was quite prepared to sort of throw it out the window. There's a very strange moment I realised when I was in the edit suite when we put up the, the caption early on in the first episode, and it said Birmingham 1919. And I kind of realised when you, it was really weird, I realised... After that, you can basically do whatever you like because you know, it looks like you're telling a true story. You know? So once you put that up there, you've kind of earned this, you've earned this belief from the audience. And as long as you don't blow it, as long as you don't get silly, you, know, you, then, can push, you, can, you then can sort of push the envelope and turn the volume up a little bit. And Grant was amazing at that. So, so how early on were you involved, Grant, and, and how did that sort of process... We did, some, we did pre-production. Didn't, I came yeah. in... It was pretty early. It was pretty early. It, was what, it must have been, we, must have been we, 12, we 16 round, weeks. We went round Manchester and we went round Liverpool. We went round Leeds very early on. Which can be unusual in television, can't it, to be able yeah, to have that we, length we of time about, with a director? Prep, roughly. Which is really unusual. Which I mean, actually, really I mean, yeah, this is, it is, I mean, Jamie's right, this is not the ideal piece for a masterclass because <laughs> it is really exceptional. The way it should be a benchmark. <laughs> it's a benchmark. It is really exceptional the way we got to make this, you know, the, 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 the script, Killian, I had, I had a certain amount of credence at the BBC. You know, we were allowed um, a lot of, we, you know, we, the, the filmmakers were really embraced and, and which is why we were able to make, you know, such an authored piece, you know, because normally you would have many more, many more sort of factors coming down on you, but actually they were, they were really amazing at just letting us really, really go with it, which is unusual. Looking enough to be at the screening of the first mm. couple of episodes, and this absolute, and I just got it again then, visceral sense of excitement in watching it, because it really felt like you hadn't seen anything like this on television, the scale and the scope of it, and the, the kind of heightened concept. <sighs> How, just talk us through how you got that, you know, with a relatively limited budget uh, up there. I can't really remember. No, I can remember. It, was, uh, <laughs> it's a, it can be a bit of a blur, though. Um, it was... Well, firstly, um, you, you take the, the, the Garrison Lane. Is that Garrison Lane is just... Uh, if you go to Birmingham... That's the name of the location. That's the name of the location. That's where the Garrison is. Is that it's in a, just a, um, it's in a... It's in a suburban kind of area. And... There was, I think we were around the, uh, the docks in Liverpool, and, I was, um, and it was looking at Liverpool that I, I thought we could get the scale. And um, I thought, well, I, th- I don't know whose idea it was actually to put the garrison in that, that location. Was it was Brian, wasn't it? Was Brian. It was amazing. It was, it was an amazing story, this, because we all went there. Brian. Brian, Brian Kaczynski, Kaczynski. Who's oh, the line producer. Line producer. Who's basically in charge of not spending too much money. <laughs> and we, all, we all went to this location, and we arrived, and it was like... Yeah, it's amazing, but you know we can't begin to afford it. So I literally, I spent three minutes there, turned around and walked out. I was going, you know, don't show me this stuff because it's killing me. Cause we, I, I, I know we can't film there, you know, because I mean it was, it's just so vast. And about a week later, Brian came up to me and goes, Otto, we've got to film in the gap. We've got to film at what was it called? The, it was um, the tobacco docks. Anyway. Tobacco uh, docks. It was we, a, we've got to film that. I go, I know we have Brian, but we can't afford it. You know, you're meant to be in charge of the money. What are you doing coming to me telling me we've got to film that? It should be the way around. <laughs> I was going, we can't film there, Brian. He was like, we've got to. We've got, yeah. And it was actually Brian, that's it it, entirely yeah. down to Brian Kaczynski, the line producer. And that is exceptional, to have a line producer it telling a, you you've got to go and spend more money. <coughs> yeah, and we did. And we did. And we went and did that. And then we got the other street. And we found the street. Andy, Andy Morgan, who was the location manager, I was scouting around. And it, what happened was that we were based in Leeds for various reasons. 
And we just, I just knew you couldn't get the kind of housing stock that we needed. So I said to Andy, what, we're going to go over to Liverpool. And it's that, it was that kind of rudimentary. And I thought, oh, God, I'm pushing it here. I'm pushing us. I thought they'll all kill me. So anyway, I drove, we drove over to Liverpool. And I said, look, there's all these houses that are like getting knocked down. So I said, Andy, drive down them. So we drove down them. And um, <clears throat> it was near where um, Ringo Starr was born. And they, they had the Beatles. The next door, the the next next door, door street. The, the next door street. is We found this deserted street. I think it was, what, I don't know how many houses now. Was it about... There was about 30, it was about 60 odd houses. And uh, I, I got out of the car and I said, this is it. This is gonna be the Shelby Street. This is it, we can do it here. All I needed to do was go back and explain to Katie, who was the producer, Katie Swindon, oh, we're gonna go to Liverpool now. We're gonna have to afford to go to Liverpool because if we go there to put the garrison, it became like a package. And then it, what happened was that we then <coughs> orchestrated going there for like a month and then shooting everything back in Leeds. So it became a very um, controlled, um, it, it felt like a very, very controlled kind of package that we would go there for a month, four weeks, shoot on the studio sets that we built the interior um, of the betting shop, which was all the kind of knockdown. You go into the into the uh, into the houses, which wasn't actually as it was originally written, because it was written as a barber shop, and he went through the barber yeah. shop. But we, ju I just said we couldn't afford to do that at that point. And I said, but maybe it's just into the house. Mm. And actually, it, it worked out. It, it, you know, it worked out okay. Right. So, uh, and that was a really a huge homage to Rio Bravo. Really, I was thinking of John Wayne when I was do doing that. But sort of, um, those were two sets that were interior interior studio sets. So we had a kind of we had a um, kind of had a hub. So you you could shoot. I don't know how many weeks we shot in studio overall. Um, I think it was like two three weeks. And then we had a month in Liverpool, and then we had other AA and other locations beyond that. But we the had fact that you were on location a lot really helps the feel of the. Yeah, I think it is. Really yeah, it does. But it's sort of. But as long as you control the look, and we control the look by painting that street, we painted all <laughs> the bricks. I know it sounds mad. Painted all the bricks. We painted all the bricks. He won't do this. He won't. He won't do himself justice. It's this story. I'm going to do it. Okay, you do it. Because he's so, he's so modest. I knew this would happen. This was this whole street. Literally, it's it, you know, it went on from. They painted every. They didn't just. You know, you, you got these houses, and they're all different colours. They're yellows and blue. You know, crazy colours. So we had to paint the whole thing. Most people would just come along with those massive, great pressurised kind of spray guns and just you know, hose the whole thing yeah. down, have it done in a day. Grant got his team to paint. In each individual brick. So, yeah, so the mortar, true. so the mortar, it didn't take the colour. Not once, three times. Yeah. So you've got three, three. different colours. So you've got the base black to take it all down to the same colour. Then you put a kind yeah, of mottle over the top, yeah. and then there was a brown over the top. Each individual brick of yeah. sixty houses. That's not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, I know. Yeah, it was cool. No, they did it. It was my. It was the he didn't pick up a paintbrush. I didn't yeah. pick up a paintbrush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this great painter. His name is Splash. So, so when I had yeah, he's from, who, he was Birmingham. Splash. He's from Birmingham. He was, we had Splash. This, he was Splash. He was Splash. He was an Aston Villa supporter actually, and of course he was the went, coolest. He was the coolest because oh Stephen came down, and they had a conversation. He was trying. Stephen, Stephen, and Splash were having a conversation. I had to say, oh God, we've got to go on a paint splash. You can't be talking about proper, football. Proper, proper, proper Bromley accent, didn't you? Yeah, he's a top, mm. proper yeah. Bromley. So oh, one yeah. of my Absolutely. questions was, who were the, were the main collaborators on your team? I think we have the answer. Oh, we've got, oh yeah, there was some great... Splash. Nick Wilkinson was um, the kind of supervising art director. He was just a man mountain. I mean, seriously. Uh, fantastic. And Paul Ward was construction manager. Yourself, Smithers was set deck on, on both series. And... Uh, 
uh, we had uh, wonderful graphics in the first series. Um, and, um, and talk to me a bit about the visual effects, because that, I think, was the other thing that that felt really new well, the digital and exciting. Stuff that was, yeah, the, that, was, that actually that how that one, worked. Uh, that first was the, the, the kind of mega city mm. thing. Mm. I, I did draw it, and it actually came... I was in the V&A, and I happened to see this engraving, and I kind of took a photograph of it. And I... I uh, we were talking about how we'd make it big, and I think it was yeah. again Brian who said, well, We've got to make it look like Mega City and sort of like Blade Runner. No, well, that was, that, that that was, was, that was we went into a um, company called Blue Bolt, Bolt did it, yeah, yeah. Blue Bolt did it, but yeah. they did, you know, they did it properly, you know, in that they did their research and you know, investigated what Birmingham should look like in 1920 and blah blah blah, and you know, did it how you meant to do it. And so I came in for the first viewing, and it, it was fine, but it just looked really underwhelming. Yeah, but they, you know, they'd done all their research, and, and so it was like guys got, you know, throw all the research away. At, you know, we want it to look like mm. Mega City One, like Blade Runner, like you know. And so they then went for it and went absolutely fantastic. But I mean, if, you, if it stops and you have a look at it, I mean, and you know, it makes absolutely no sense at all. There's no. a crane going out there, and you're just going to go, what? You know, I mean, it, you know, yeah, what matter. is that big building? Well, actually, what is it? Originally, it was actually a huge ship that I'd taken a photograph That's of. Right, it, was, yeah. it was a huge ship. And it was, it was oversized, but I thought it just looked really interesting. And I think it was that, that kind of idea of always bringing something that wasn't actually obvious and bringing it in from kind of left field to keep it fresh. And was always. it all harmonious? Were you all on the same page throughout? Pretty, Were there shutdowns between you guys as to I didn't, no, the, I didn't, the I don't look of it? No. I certainly know later on in the edit suite, I remember a conversation about a scene. I can't remember if it was taking out a scene or putting in a scene. And you were so calm about it. Because I, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, inside, if I were you, you know, you. Got no idea. It went the way that you. <laughs> yeah. I do remember that very, very clearly. You were very, very calm. He was doing so mind so melting on you at that very, time. Yeah, exactly. There was um, Katie Swindon, who's the producer, did this beautiful, beautiful sort of coffee table book of the whole mm. first series afterwards. And what was really, really beautiful to see was actually she put in there Grant and I's early reference images from. Heaven's Gate and our mm. early drawings and our early concepts mm. and our early and then you know, marry, you know you know like they do in those kind of cool coffee table film books put them next to the original image and it was just it was really really beautiful to see how true we'd stayed to the original idea and 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 and, and how and that was what was exciting I think that's what I think that's what people excited get people excited about it it feels you know it doesn't matter who the author is as long as it feels authored as long as you feel there's a point you know a singular point of vision yeah. and that's a hard thing to do in tv really really hard thing to do because it is a you know it is a collaborative um, world with lots and lots of studio execs and all kinds of people so to to keep that singularity of vision is 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 what i'm it's most proud of that shot that that massive great long single take shot um that was about three pages of script and you know normally you'd you know do it properly and cut it all up and do it. And we, I had this idea of doing it all in one shot, which is you know, a very, very expensive thing to do because you have to get things called Russian arms mm. and it's, it's, it's a big number. And everybody was like, really, really, Otto? I was going, yeah, yeah, really, really, really. We, we've got to do it, we've got to do it, we've got yeah. to do it. And so everybody arrived and you know, it was expensive, really, really expensive. And all the horses were there and then the Russian arm was there, this crazy piece of kit that we had to ship in from Europe. And you have to practice it over and over and over and over again for the horses to get comfortable with the thing and the timing, and then the guy doesn't drop the money in at the right... It's just, you know, trying to do something like that is... is and eventually, anyway, after about six hours, we got it, and we moved on. Anyway, I got to the edit suite, like, four, <laughs> month, four or five weeks later, and it just was a disaster. It just didn't fit at all in, in the whole film. And I was like, so we cut it. And I was like, oh, God, what am I going to do when the producers come in? I've spent so much money on this shot, and we cut it. And it wasn't in, it wasn't in the sequence. And it was only about five days before Picture Lock 
um, that I suddenly turned to the execs and I said, what are we doing about titles? You know, wh wh who's doing our title sequence? And they were like, we haven't got money for a title sequence. <laughs> you know, we haven't got a title sequence. And we were like, oh shit, how are we going to do our titles? You know, and then that shot came back in as the title sequence. But I, if we hadn't, if we'd had a proper title sequence, it would never ever be in the show. And it's the show. Like, everybody oh, yeah, but you and it's the money shot. But you did a load of graphics. There was a graphics that oh, were done. That's right. that, and they were so was, bad. Was, we threw them out. That's right. You thought they were so bad. They, they were, were kind of like spaghetti western yeah, they were stuff. So, weren't they? they were so bad. We, we so we can't. Yeah. That's it. They, they went up we on the wall and then came down. Really we couldn't, couldn't <laughs> use them. So we thought now we haven't got a title sequence. We spent all our money on that rubbish title sequence that looks awful. So what are we going to do? And suddenly we resurrected that shot again. The perfect solution. Anyway. There's a shift in series two, you know, well, yeah, more from go, western to kind to of gangster. gangster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was I made really conscious decisions really there with taking the gold. There was an antique gold in series one, and then making it more blasé, more richer in series two. But it was connect, so you'd, you'd still connect yeah. visually through the whole piece. So it has it was um, uh, there was a thematic connection, and that. With that piece, the Eden Club is that it's London, and it's got to. Um, it's got. How do you make it bigger than what you've just done with Birmingham? And so we went to Bolton for London, <laughs> <laughs> which was really crazy because everybody thought. I mean, I remember uh, taking Laurie and uh, it was Colm to, to. I said we're going to go to Bolton because I think we, you know, we can do London there. And they're like, what? So we ended up in this um, uh, high-rise car park. And we walked down it, threw across this 70s sort of shopping precinct. Looked at, and they were going, what, what, why have you brought us here? And then spun round. And it's adjacent to this, huge, this kind of uh, crescent, which was, was, was built in the kind of um, 20s. And it's just stunning. And it looks like something out of London. Or, and uh, I said, right, we can do London here. Because we couldn't afford to go to London. So um, that, was, that, that gave us a great scale. It gave us a kind of metropolitan... Um, uh, look. Uh, then, then the interior was in Liverpool. We found this. We found this incredible in interior that was actually originally an old nightclub, but it was. It had this white ceiling, and I remember walking in and go, "Oh, wow! I think I could paint that gold." And it was. I think we used. I don't know how many gallons. I, you might. I might misquote <laughs> about thirty-six gallons of gold paint, which then was called um, Peaky Gold. And um, Splash painted it yet again, but he got covered in gold. He was walking out looking completely gold. But it was great because we could really up the kind of Las Vegas quality of it. There was decadent. And there was the Scorpions that was a reference to Ryan Gosling's jacket in Drive that's there. And I kind of put that motif in because it was just like... Um, uh, Sabini is really the Scorpion on Tommy's back. All that kind of stuff. So I just had a ball really doing it. I didn't take any notice of any real historical reference to kind of art deco 20s because it becomes something like, it, it becomes like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, mm. but on acid, you know, something like that. <laughs> and I, I think it looks too, it becomes, you know, because there was a great designer called Van Nies Paul Glaze who did all those kind of movies, but they're all white and mm. pristine and this wasn't Very that. polished, this, yeah. is, this isn't, this is drugs. Another bit of your word that What's I loved that? was when, um, you know, the garrison is blown up at the oh, beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's just redone in a oh, really God, garish you know, like, way. Such, yeah, but that and, felt and like they'd, they'd, they'd made the garrison pub just look utterly beautiful. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we're going to blow it up and make it oh, really tasteless. Yeah. I know. I was <laughs> and actually, it was, it was a conversation. I think we were having a three-way conversation. Yeah. I was sitting in a car in Liverpool on a recce. Mm. And Stephen was going, <clears> yeah, yeah. I said, so really, what do you want? You want to blow it up and we have to redo it? And... 
and uh, what, what you're kind of thinking we should put in there. And uh, yeah, well, he's well, he's 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 brought back and redone it like he's he's seen London, like the leading club, and he's kind of brought it back to Birmingham. But it was it was really heart wrenching to to destroy the pub. But actually, it only lasted about <laughs> sort of a few days. And once that had been done, and we were into it, yeah. I couldn't really. I, I didn't bother me then. It was fine because it was part of the story. It was okay. And then we got all these incredible. Um, sculptures and we put it in and yeah I quite liked it actually at the end I was quite <laughs> pleased really and we, and, painted, what, and we painted that goal too what over the two series felt felt the biggest challenge felt the trickiest whether the particular set was the particular element of I it think, that felt the I, most I, I difficult I think the second series because the, the, the world expanded mm. so absolutely hugely until finally we ended up doing the derby and we, we, you know, we hadn't... Re- the first year we tried to do Cheltenham and we couldn't afford to do Cheltenham. So we did it as a nightclub, remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was it. So that was how we solved that. Second year, we really did have to go to the races. So how were we going to do this? And, and it was pretty sure. much all shot in one tent. It was a one it? tent. <laughs> it was really so we used to go in the game. We got this tent and we, parked, we, yeah. we put it in the, the car park where the studio was. And we basically turned it each time. So when you go and watch it for the bar area where... Um, Sam Neill's character. I'm, do I spoilers? Um, I mean, you know, he's 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 he's, he's murdered there, uh, and that reference was from Wyatt Earp, like Lawrence Kasdan's Wyatt Earp. Mm. I really like that look, that kind of Western saloon that was intense. So I thought, well, we could do that. So it keeps the the look of the Western that gangsters, and then turning it into where all the horses are um, kind of housed, and then turn it into the uh, kind of uh, lavatory block. I, can't, I think there was a one more place that we turned that tent into. I can't remember. I think there was. I remember. Oh, God, there was, wasn't it? There was a refresher's tent. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that was what we did. So a multitasking Multi-talented. But I think another thing that worked really well was that the relationship was very good with Steve, and this very good with Steve. Oh, so yeah, it was great. So he sort of, you know, if you say we're having problems with this... So sort of one of the big ones I remember from the second series was, uh, you know, Steve wrote this character, Alfie Solomon, who was a Jewish oh, yeah. baker, and he said he's going to be that a baker. Right. And you guys went around and you just couldn't find a bakery. We couldn't find a bakery anywhere. So we, we found this rum factory, and uh, we suggested, well, maybe he holds up in this rum factory. It was fantastic, because you went in there, you couldn't light anything, because it blow you all up, because the smell of the rum was extraordinary. There was whiskey, there was every, it, was, it was basically stored for that. And uh, Stephen wrote it for that. I think it was. No, what Steve said was, "Great, just do that, but don't change the script." So he's talking about bread. bread, And and he's he's saying, "Well, I'm a baker." We just see people carrying all the things of rum behind him. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's great. That makes it funnier. So it was just a great thing of you know, when you're on a relatively small time and and and, and small money, it forces you to be quite ingenious. (laughs) Well, that's what happened with the First World War because in the first script Mm. there was all the trench, that big trench battle. Yeah, we just couldn't, and that was kind of then came back to being them being um, um, uh, uh, clay kickers. Yeah, you know, going at tunnelers, and we built that little bit of tunnel. Remember, which was only about ten foot long. Yeah, it was. And it was a very short piece. Of it was a very short piece of tunnel, but we made it look like it was bigger. And you kind of did all, you know, you do all lots of tricks, and that was shot very much. I mean, it was a bit like doing Great Escape. Mm. Let's be honest. I don't know. I didn't do Great Escape. Didn't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> That was the so, same, funny enough, the end, of the, the end of the first series was going to be a huge gun battle, and we just weren't able yeah, to mount do that. that. Yeah, that's and true. And so Steve then wrote the amazing scene where Ada comes out with the pram all dressed in black. Mm. 
which is just yeah. way more impactful yeah. and wonderful. And powerful, yeah. You know, so, um, so these constraints, I think that however big it looks in scale, you've still got the constraints, and to have them is great. It makes you be ingenious. Constraints are good. Yeah. So back to the beginning, you're the lead director, so it's kind of on your shoulders with these guys to come up with a lot of the, the themes, the <coughs> ideas, how you're going to approach this. Why, why did you pick that particular sequence? And um, because, you know, everybody who talks about Peaky, you know, they tend to kind of, everybody talks about, you know, the music and the amazing rock and rollness and the scale of it and, you know, all that kind of stuff and the incredible design and all that kind of stuff. But all of which, you know, is terrific and was amazing and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, really, it always, always, always just keep, it just comes back to the acting. Mm. You know, and, and, and when you've got people like that doing stuff like that, you know, it doesn't, you know, I mean, George Steele, the guy who lit it, did an incredible job, you know, and the composition's beautiful, the design's beautiful, but, at, you know, it's just, I love that because it just really brings you back to the basics, you know, and, and, and you realise that it's just, you know, it's all about script yeah. and it's all about performance and, and, and that's what really makes great TV or great films, you know, so, so and I, I love all the big stuff and I'm super proud of the crazy decisions we made with the music and the, all that kind of stuff and that's all, that's all part of it, but, but when you get scenes like that, that's what I think audiences really connect to or, or, or really separates it from, from dare I say it, most TV that is, is, is out there at the moment, you know, writing like that and acting like that is pretty rare, so that's why. And, and how did you approach that with your act? How did you approach, because Tommy Shelby is such a complicated character. Yeah, he is, you know, and, and, and we were, you know, one of the really, really exciting things about TV, you know, um, aside from film, is the long form of it. And, you know, and, and being able to tell six, eight, you know, 12, 16, 20 hour stories. Um, it's, it's, very, and it's very exciting for a director, for a writer, and also for an actor, you know, because they get to really, really craft a character. And, you know, Killian was, you know, he's, he's done lots of big movies and this kind of stuff, but he's never, you know, they all, all actors, and that's why we're seeing so many great actors in TV now, they're all craving to do some proper acting, you know, and, and most movies you don't get to do that. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, for Killian to be able to play a role like that and, 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 and have the confidence of the filmmakers and the, and, the, and the execs and the producers to play it that slowly and, and to make such a long burn is really exciting. But it's also scary, you know, and there, you, know, you, you, need, you know, you need somebody, if, if, if you're not going to do anything and he doesn't do anything, you need to, it helps that you're incredibly beautiful. That's one advantage, you know, because <laughs> you could just look at Killian all day long. And many, many, many times the first AD would sort of say to me, do you want to cut? Because I'd be like, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> just entranced by this, by this guy, you know, and all the, all the women, but everybody, not just, you know, I mean, he's, he's incredible, he's incredible. So that helps. That's a big bonus. If you're going to get somebody to do nothing, then that. But then also, it's very, very important to surround them with, you know, and, and, and what's brilliant about Killian and, he, you know, and that part, he is this kind of sort of, he's this rock in this maelstrom, and chaos is going on all around him, and you've got some very, very big stuff going on, big acting, you know, some, choose, you know, some scenery tuning stuff, but, you know, and having him as the rock in the middle of it all was great. Um, Annabelle Wallace, you know, she was, I mean, she was an amazing piece of casting because she came in and I was just completely entranced. When you have, you know, you're casting, you're, you're sitting there talking to them for five, 10, 20 minutes beforehand, you know, and I was completely entranced by her and just thought she was amazing, amazing, amazing. Then we turned the camera on to do some reading and it was just diabolical, you know, she just completely, she's, she's nothing there at all. 
So it was like, oh dear, that's a shame. And, yeah, and I, we were reviewing all tapes with everybody, and I was like, let's get Annabelle back in. They were like, what? And she was, she was awful. I said, no, come on, let's get Annabelle back in. I know she's got it. So we got her back in again. I worked with her again, worked with her again, and then nothing. You know, as soon as the camera started. And I called her up, and I said, Annabelle, what the hell's going on? You know, you're incredible. I know you're incredible. You know, and then and the cameras go on. I mean, she was quite green. She hadn't done much before. And she was just really, really nervous, really nervous, you know, and, and, and eventually managed to sort of just get her to calm down a bit. And, 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 and then once she'd got, you know, once she'd got the gig and, 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 and her confidence just came flying in and, and she nailed it. But, but um, I'm proud of that piece of casting because it was most people were telling me I was a lunatic. <laughs> and how much time did you have with Killian and, and with Annabelle with, um, to you, build on this? You never have enough, you yeah. know, but I mean, but you know, we, no, we do, I, mean, I, I always insist on a week of um, rehearsals, which ends up getting whittling down, to, gets whittled down by everything else to about two or three days. But, um, you know, I mean, we've got some pros there, you know, everybody there, you've got Sam Neill, Helen McCrory, Paul Anderson, you know, these guys really, really know what they're doing. So, you know, and, and like I said, you know, often in rehearsals you go in there and it becomes a script doctoring session. You know, it's like, you know, let's try and do something with this piece of rubbish we got. You know, that didn't, obviously was unnecessary, you know, um, because of the gold that we started with. You know, so, and they're all on side as well. They're not coming in with any kind of agenda. They're not, you know, they're not trying to get their part bigger or worse or better, you know, because <coughs> that was great as well. And, you, and also because we had Killian and Sam, Sam Neill, you know, it, the, way a, the way a set runs is, or, or, or sort of, yeah, how, how it depends on very much on the top dog. And if he's behaving well, if he's turning up on time, if he knows his lines, if he's right on the money, then, then everybody else comes into line. And Killian was just incredible. Sam Neill was so professional that he used, to, he used to, even when he wasn't in for the day, he would come in to set and he always wants to see, if he's got a scene coming up with an actor, he'll always want to watch that actor working beforehand so Sam would often be there on days off you know so it felt you know and so everybody's going shit this is you know, this, this is a proper you know let's pick our game up so you know everybody really knew and, and you know everybody knew very very quickly within a couple of days everybody could see that this was something really special, special. Helen came it's a bit disingenuous of me to say this but she's a friend so what the hell Helen came in on the first day and you know and 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 frankly was massively underprepared you know, and, and, and really blew it and was a disaster, you know, and, and we ended up having to reshoot her scene because it was so awful. You know, she just, she just, she, she, she came in as a, as a, you know, early, she was quite late in, two or three weeks, which is always a bit hair raising, but she basically hadn't sort of, she hadn't stepped up to the level that it was, you know, and, and, and we had a long chat that night, quite a stern chat, and, um, and she went back and came in and nailed it, but, you know, but that was the level that we were operating at and, 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 and it was considerably higher than most TV Yes, and it, it's sort of therefore anything that wasn't up to that. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. For Helen McCrory to be below par, then you know, yeah. you know, you know, you're in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> the joy of um, <clears throat> the cast that you put in place is that in the second and now the third, those actors are so wonderful. You can take all of them on such incredible yeah. journeys, yeah. and they are, you know. In fact, I feel most of the time you think, well, we're underusing these actors because they can do so much, and there's just not enough time to to serve them properly. But what? the incredible talent that you put in place with that family. In, in what is you know, still very mainstream television and mm-hmm. for a, a, you know, a big audience, mm-hmm. in creating a, kind of, a, a character as beguiling mm-hmm. as Tommy Shelby, did you as producers, as, as, as director, feel any sort of sense of moral consideration around you know, the message that 
that was given. No, that's fine. I no, I did. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the things that no, I mean, it's a great, great question. It's actually the it's actually the seed of the whole show, to be honest. Is is that is that, and it goes back to what Jamie was saying about mythologizing. You know, um, um, you know, I felt really, really passionate that there's a line in the opening line of Goodfellas, which is from as far back as I can remember. I always wanted to be a gangster. And to us, that was kind of the key thing, is that we've got to make somebody who you want to be, you know, because then, obviously, later on, when he becomes morally ambiguous, then, you, then you're in a really interesting, you know, you're in a really interesting place. So, so, you know, the whole design ethic was, you know, those suits, they didn't exist. You know, we, I, you know, I designed those suits because I wanted to wear them myself, you know, and I wanted everybody to, you can now go into a tailor and ask and for a peaky. Ask, yeah. Same as you can now go into any hairdressers in the whole of the UK and ask for a peaky haircut. Those haircuts are nothing to do with Birmingham. Those haircuts are taken from mugshots of New Zealand conflict convicts in the 1920s. Mm. You know, there's, there's never, they'd never be in England, those haircuts. I mean, it's like, but they're great haircuts. They're great haircuts. And you just kind of go, I've got, you know, I've, I've had one since. You know, um, yeah, lots of people have had peakies. It's a, it's a great look. You know, and so that's what you're, that, the point is, you know, and with the music, that's a, you know, the point is that, you know, those guys, you know, in the 1920s, mm-hmm. they would have been listening to the hippest, coolest rock and roll of that time. Mm-hmm. Happened to be played by fiddles, you know, but that doesn't, you know. But the point is that, you know, so if you put fiddle music, these guys look like losers. So, you know, so the point is you then put on top of them, you know, the coolest, what I consider to be the coolest, hippest sort of rock and roll music now, because you're trying to make it feel immediate. You want to, you know, I I don't want to look through a looking glass back at the 1920s. I want to feel now what it would be like to be a gangster, you know, Um, and I want, you know, I want it to be my experience. I want as an audience member to be kind of going, and then when they start, like you say, then when it starts to get morally then you're really intrigued. You're kind of going, oh shit, I kind of, you know, I love your cars and I love your women and I love your suits. Less keen on what you're doing over here. You know, where, you know what's going on? And then, then you've got a cool show. Yeah. I think it's also, um, it's very much, I mean, I don't feel the challenge of going to see Macbeth in the theatre <clears throat> is also a moral challenge. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm about to go and see someone who kills lots of people and, you know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and he's my lead character and I'm going to go on that journey with him. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, Steve doesn't write referring to other TV shows at all. It's a very, very, very pure thing. But it so happens there are a lot of morally conflicted lead characters in TV out there. Some are done but, better yeah. than others. And I think that... But not many as beguiling as Tommy Shelby. No, but Tommy, but Tommy's well, re- I mean, he's really, really unhappy. I mean, it's not as, I mean he's, yeah. having, he's really struggling with what's going on. He's, I mean, he's got some way more demons than... Most, most. I think the demons is. I think the demons is important, and I think the fact that there's a self-awareness and intelligence. Yeah. He's not a thug. <clears throat> he might act like a thug sometimes, but he's not. And I think that that the fact that you see there is, he's a complicated person, yeah. and there's a lot going on there, and there's a turmoil. So it's not. We're not just saying, hey, come and watch someone beat up. Let's, you know, there's a there's there's so much there to it's be discussed. And, and, yeah. I think one of the beautiful things you did was bring the viewers so so effortlessly and uh, and, and cleverly into that. Because I think that when you're identifying with the lead character, and that is the morally complicated And I think person. those conversations were had around water <coughs> yeah. coolers as to you know, where yeah. people stood. And Killian, and, yeah, Killian was, was, was very, very aware of that as well. I mean, the guy is, you know, I mean, he's an incredible actor, but also, mm. you know, he's also very professional and also you know, concerned about his role as an actor and, as a, you know, and gets a bit, I start to sound a bit grandiose here, but I mean, but, you know, he is aware of that mm. and he is aware of kind of his, his, mm. his, 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 his mm. Dare I say it's duty to humanity or something like that? That's a bit big, but you know what I mean. But yeah, he, you know, he's conscious of that, and, and, and everybody was, you know. So so you know, you want to mythologise it, but you know, it should never. I hope it never felt gratuitous. No. And Steve was very uh, clear that first of all, 
a lot of men have been brutalized by the war. Um, <clears throat> obviously, not all of them become Tommy Shelby's, but they had been brutalized because they'd been told by authorities to go and yeah. do stuff. Uh, but also, he's very clear that when there is a violent action, there is a consequence. It never just happens. There is a consequence on many levels, both emotionally on the characters or, you know, plot-wise. So, um, yeah, but it's not something we take lightly at all. No. Grant, if I can just come back to you from it. In kind of the ongoing design process, as you were watching those characters develop and those layers of the onion peel, mm. were you then reacting as a designer to that? Was that influencing how you created spaces in which they could then exist? Yeah, very much. I, I think with Tommy, Tommy's development, he's, he's a very clever man. I mean, mm. he buys houses in London, et cetera, et cetera. But his, his main office, his, his office in Sitsius 2, is, is his, aping his betters. You know, he's, he's got a kind of semi-gentleman's... It's got a gentleman's club kind of feel to it. Um, it's going up the scale. It's a bigger space. Um, also, there's a reference to The Godfather because it's based on Don Corleone's um, the window, the relationship with the window to the desk is. And the rest is based on Eugene O'Neill's house in Long Island. So, well, again, it wasn't anything to do with Birmingham. So you're grafting out a kind of mythologised aspects there because I thought that was really interesting. It was also the fact that the space got bigger. And when people get wealth, they end up buying bigger spaces. So that was kind of, that kind of evolved in series two, um, especially with, with um, also him buying a house for Ada. He's not really buying it for Ada. He's buying it because it's going to be his base next to the canal basin in, in London. And uh, that's, that's the plan because he knows he's going to get the, the rights to, the, to export from, from Churchill because he's done this deal. Um, uh, so he's, there's a lot of Stephen's written that all in and when you started looking at the map you suddenly realised geography wise that there was a real plan he was a very calcul- he's a very calculated man very contained and that has to be reflected and I thought that was, that was how I was I brought that into the kind of the sets or the, the look and set, the second season the second series was just pushing that, that forward every space got bigger everything got more grandiose even to the point of going to Chatsworth for the country house. It's like <laughs> huge. So it, you, you've got his aspiration. So then when you get, you know, then you realise where he's going. Yeah. He's not going to stop at a back-to-back in so Birmingham. The design absolutely yeah, is go, part um, of that storytelling process. I think, yeah, I like, to, I like the idea of designing the narrative. Yes. The history. Mm-hmm. I don't just design sets. I'm not really interested in that at all. I think it should be telling the story. It should be helping telling the story. And I think that is when, you know, and when the whole becomes greater than some of the parts, yeah. when each element it's, is part of that story. Part of the story. It should, should help the actor. You yeah. should, the actor should walk in and feel that that environment has some relevance to them as living characters. I think if they just walk into a room and you haven't thought about it, then how do they, how do they add that element... You want them to feel that. Mm. That's very much... I feel that anyway. I'm not really... I never think of production design as someone that... Say, well, what was production design? Well, it's certainly not building sets. Yeah. It's not I a bolt-on. Really, it's yeah. not a bolt-on. I really don't think... I don't see it like that. I see it as telling the story. I mean, Ken Adam actually said that. You know, it's, like, it's about creating spaces that tell the, help the narrative tell yeah. the story. Like, the war, the, war, the war Room and Strange Love is a prime example of that. It's, it's iconic. But it's also... It's, it's like a poker game. And he, you know, he's, he's making it a metaphor for yeah. you know, nuclear disasters. That, so I think design can be helping. Like if you see Tommy's office, 
he's a man on the make. Yeah. He, it tells you something about As well about as that, Tommy. it's something secret as well. Mm. It's like, oh, suddenly he's revealed he's got this wealth. And it's also, you haven't been told up until that point how wealthy they've got, mm. but it's reflected then in all the decor. He's got the horses. He's, uh, he's got really good cut glass. Yeah. All of that is really important, the detail, because if you know, Tommy picks up a glass, it's a cut glass. It's not just an ordinary glass. It's, it's crystal. So he's got money. So it's very small details that help the layering. You know, we used that as the teaser for the second That's series. That's right, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, it was money. just him walking in the office and sitting yeah. down at his desk. That's right. And uh, the BBC said they'd rigged up people with some neurological thing and apparently their brainwaves went mad or something like that. <laughs> it was used as an example well, the, of something that really worked. Yeah. Because but, you told the story with a set. Yeah, but it was like there was a globe behind his desk, yeah. which is world domination. No, I know. But it, <laughs> the irony of it is that he looks at it, he does... Mm. So it's kind of like he's, he's expanding his universe. Fantastic. And that's just before we're going to open it up to the floor in a second. But we've referenced the music several times. Can mm-hmm. we just have a quick chat about how early you kind of put the meat on the bones music-wise and it cave-wise, where, where that process we turned up from. to the edit and Otto surprised us. <laughs> really? Yeah. So you kept it under wraps You then. surprised us and we responded to the prize with, with unbridled joy. Yeah, it was, I kept the whole thing very, very quiet, you know, um, didn't tell any of the producers or anybody and just sort of, you know, because, yeah, straight up, if you had that conversation, you know, around a breakfast table, it'd be like, what? Yeah, but then you combine it with the pictures and then suddenly you, 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 it makes sense. Red Right Hand, which is the title track, I nailed a long, long way, uh, very, very early in the process, had in my head, I think before I even shot it. Um, and then Chris Barwell, who's the editor, he, so I'm a big Nick, I was a big Nick K fan, um, and Chris Barwell, the editor, then he brought in White Stripes, you know, and he was the guy who sort of who, who, who sort of modernised Nick Cave a little bit. And then we had this incredible composer, Martin, Martin Phipps, um, <laughs> um, who, who then sort of basically put together. We, we he put together a band, basically in in that style. And so you've got the Nick Cave tracks, you've got the the, the White Stripes tracks, and then you've got Martin's band that kind of filled in the gaps. But it, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, I was adamant that we weren't going to be doing period music. You know, because that would just kill every choice that you know, George, myself, Grant, every actor had made. You know, so it had to be something that was, and it's the Western. What's great about Nick Cave is he's got that kind of, he's, you know, it's urban yet Western, yeah. which is the perfect, yeah. perfect marriage. And he's, you know, and, and it's just incredibly cinematic. Um, and he, you know, and, and so then we had to get permission, obviously, from Nick Cave and Jack White. You know, and so we had to send it off to them, and they both went mental for it. You know, and and so gave us permission to use their music, as did Jack White. Um, it's a question for all three. Uh, you've mentioned a lot during this talk about uh, mythologizing the, uh, that era, period and making Megacity one and uh, uh, turning it up uh, to turn it up beyond truth and all these. And this is really, really interesting. What, um, when you were making it, did you feel that you were educating the audience? Was that kind of a pri- uh, not, not not a priority, but was that amongst your priorities, like telling a story about the time that the audience would then take away as that as truth? Um, and uh, did, and second, entwined, do you ever did you ever find yourself restricted by the period? Because obviously you used a kind of different haircuts and. Uh, sorry, I realise I'm asking two questions here. I'm being a bit cheeky. You, you had different haircuts and. Uh, uh, different music and all things. Did you ever find it res- yourself restricted by the period? I would say in answer to the first one, we, we very much felt that we were telling... A, it, it's beautiful set in that setting, but we really wanted it to feel a contem- contemporary tale. And, um, 
you know, we're thinking about... I, I heard a great radio show where Hilary Mantel was asked, hey, how, what's it like doing a historical drama? She said, this isn't a historical drama, Woolfall. It's contemporary fiction. And, um, and w- w- our attitude was the same. Strip away some of the details, and it could be a story you're telling now. And, you know, when we found... We were talking about the tagline for the back of the DVD, crime pays well, business pays better... We sort of want to say, well, you know, if you're, if you're a certain sort of Russian kingpin, why would you do drug deals when you could own a little chunk of Gazprom, make ten times the amount of money, not even break the law? And so it felt like a really, we're heading towards a, a very contemporary story about where does organised crime become, entrepreneurism, business, you know, and that's sort of where we're heading to. I think with the, um, I think with the design of it all, and yeah, and, and with Grant, you know. I speak fast and loose about not, you know, not doing research and not adhering to the truth. That's not entirely true, actually. You know, and, 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 and what you do, you know, and, and what's fabulous about working something like Grant, you know, is that you know, the guy is an encyclopedia about <laughs> that whole era. So, you know, and, and, and educated me enormously. And you know, what's important is you do need to know the rules and you do need to know what the truth is so that then you are breaking them mm-hmm. with confidence and in specific places. You know, um, if you if if you know if, if you go hell for leather on it, then it then it then it would look. I mean, actually, it is very authentic in very 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 many places. But then you just choose your cool moments to kind of go. Mm, yeah, well, you know, that one's better. Let's go with that one. And, and because because you've got a basic foundation of, of of authenticity and a basic foundation of truth, you can then break those occasional rules. So it's not quite as relaxed as I'm making it out. <laughs> Just talking about developing the character, I just wanted to touch on a point. Watching the opening again and seeing him drop the money in the in the tin and stuff like that. I mean, obviously that that makes you like him before he then goes and does a whole host of unlikable things. Are, are all of those touchstones always in the script, or do you sometimes say, you know, can we just have one more thing maybe that makes us warm to him, or, or is it all just there on the page? No, I mean that that was in the script. Um, I mean, yeah, I've never I've never done less to a script. Um, what, I mean, what we ended up doing to the script, and the, you know, anything we did do to the script was production-based, you know, because we logistically couldn't, or, or, or there was, actually that's not entirely, but, but there were very, very, very few creative um, changes that we made to the script. I mean, Steve really nailed it, really, really nailed it. Oh, hi there. Um, I'm, my name's Charlie Marbles. I'm an editor, but with a view to hopefully become a director. Um, also, to what extent did you push for those performances, or did you leave it to them to really? Did you hone what they brought to you, or did you really push for those performances? I, guess, uh, yeah, I work pretty hard. Yeah, it's, it's the part of the process I enjoy the most. You know, and, and consider to be. I, I love it. I really, really love it. And when somebody turns up and puts in a performance like that, I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, you know, I, I, I so often forget to say cut. I so often forget to kind of, you know, you know I'm just, I just get complete, I'm rubbish at background, you know, because I just, I, I never, you know, somebody says to me, oh, we've got to go again. I go, why? And, you go, and then they show it back, you know, you go, and you go well, because half the set fell down. You know, <laughs> I'm like, God, did it? You know, I'm just so entranced in what's going on. You know. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, we, yeah I, I don't want to sound, I don't want to big myself. Yeah, I did work hard. You know, they're, they're great, but every actor needs, every actor needs work. Not work, that sounds, that, that sounds like you you know, need guidance. Whatever, I don't know what you want. Directing, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the worst. The thing I found with Billy Kimber. That, um, yeah, Billy Kimber, that's a good point. Billy everybody, a great thing. everybody was like, what, Charlie Creed Miles? You know, you know, and I've worked with Charlie a lot, you know, mm. and, and, and I love him. He's chaos and he's a nightmare, but, you know, but, but I, I have a way with him. 
I mean, and everybody was like, really? And I remember when we were shooting it, the scene, the first scene we shot with Charlie was the, the end of episode two where he comes into the bar and it's they're all going to go, they're all going to go off to the races. You know, and this guy comes out and he's pretty, you know, he's, pretty, he's, a, he's a pretty sort of aggressive guy, Charlie, anyway, you know, and he comes onto a mm. set and he's like, oh, bloody hell, Charlie Creek Miles is here. You know, and, and, and all these other guys, you know, and he comes in and he just went for it, like proper, and everyone's looking at me, kind of going, what the what are you doing to our show, Otto? You know, like, what? Mm. but because the but because the, the 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 Shelbys are so ice cool and so kind of you know just so just rock solid, I just thought it'd be really really fun to have this guy. And that's the other thing we haven't talked about much this afternoon. It's fun, and I was very very conscious of that when we were making this. Has got to be fun, you know. It's got to be you know. And 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 Charlie's performance was daft but fun. But that, but it was very interesting because every normal storytelling instinct would be okay. We've been laying the road for the bad guy almost since the first scene. Yeah. Billy Kimber, Billy Kimber, you don't want to cross him. And then this guy comes in and he's a bit of a nincompoop. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were watching it and Steve just laughed and went, "He's there for the taking." Yeah. And I think that's a really, really great sort of reversal of expectation that you know you and Steve did. I guess this is a question for Mr. Glazebrook. Um, I'm just interested in the original pitch that Steve Knight did. Mm-hmm. Did he have um, how? Sorry, this is two questions. One, what was it about it that grabbed you? Mm-hmm. Um, and second, how how much of the story did he have? Was it a complete narrative arc? Was everything planned out in his head? No, very very much not. He he came in and, and really sort of said, "This is the sort of story I wanted to t- want to tell." He pitched it verbally, and uh, it was sort of about that time and the fact that these people came back from the war and then you know. Not many years later, Winston Churchill was putting up a, um, a machine gun turret in their streets. So there was a sort of air of le- backbone of a revolution. But then it was also a lot about the family. And um, my boss, Karen, had worked a lot in family comedies, which is kind of great because one thing you learn from those is to how to t- tell a story where you don't have any stakes. The stakes are my homework is late. So you, the way you tell that story is pure character. And Steve's background's in comedy as well. So those stories which are really obviously we're watching guns and horses and everything but we're also watching pure character stories about brothers and and so we sort of thought this is something that we would be able to contribute to um and uh no it was just very fluent and then we went to bbc and then they said can we have a few pages and in in the pages it was very much the first episode or so in fact Uh, and then as we had more conversations it sort of became clear that he really wanted to ask the question okay if you start here how far can you go and what at what cost are you going to be able to take your family with you and he didn't know the answers you worked that out he's also finding the answers all the time and the way he writes which i haven't talked about is he doesn't plan out so he doesn't come and say i'm going to do this and we look at lots of cards and rearrange them he he really does write he sort of goes into a fugue state and writes it i think and he said sometimes a character will say something and he'll have to go back and change masses of scenes before. But I think he sort of gets into a state where, there's a, where he's writing what feels right and true. And so you get these drafts that are ridiculously beautifully achieved. Um, and it's, again, that's a very unique... I think a lot of writers don't write like that. Even in those early drafts, you, there's never a deadline. There is never a line where you go, oh, that's a bit boring. Every single line has got a freight of subtext and character... Even if someone's saying, do you want a tea? They'll, they'll have to be so much going on. So. And yet very, I remember reading them for, mm. for a, a, oh, a client of mine. Really. It's like poetry. It's, they're mm. so minimalist almost, aren't they? They're and not, very musical. Yeah, it is very musical. Very, you very have a lot musical. of question and answer and wordplay. Not forced, but the only other thing is it's very heightened. You know, it's taking a very gritty story and heightening it. Yeah. 
I just wondered, um, Otto, with you uh, directing the first three episodes, was it? Um, what it was like handing the reins over to that and what the process was in the series finding new producers, new uh, directors and where you kept on in advisor capacity in any, in any way? I mean, hand, yeah, the, the way that most... It's changing, but the way most um, British TV is made is that the commission comes so late and the, and the TX date is so early, the, tr- the transmission date is so early that you physically, it becomes impossible for one director to do the whole lot because I've got to go in, I've got to stop directing and get into the edit suite and start cutting so that the picture lock is ready for the TX date. So if, whereas if I was to direct all five episodes, five episodes then it would take, I wouldn't be in the edit suite till you know what I mean. Um, then, the, you know, for the second series, the, the show became such a success, you know, that they, they kind of were able to do whatever, they, you know, tell, tell everybody where to go, um, you know, and, and, have, and have one director. It's, you know, handing over is, you know, is... is it's a, it's, you know, it's a double-edged thing. I mean, certainly for me, personally, the bit of the process that I enjoy the least is, is the actual shoot, you know, the actual physicality of just, you know, just ch- especially in telly when you're just churning it out. It's hard, you know. Whereas, you know, it's, 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 it's the pre-stuff, it's the casting, it's the script work, it's the designing, it's that. So, and then once the thing's designed, once the thing's set up, once the look is created, for me, perhaps slightly less exciting, just not. So, I mean, it's... it's you know, it's quite fun handing over because it means you get to go and do something else. Um, but then, you know, when I hear these guys talk about series two, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, because I love it. I, you know, and I'm very, very proud of Peaky. You know, and and, and Tom, the guy, who did the second series. Second, the last two episodes did a sensational <clears throat> job. And you know, by then the sort of style is so, and the actors are in are in position, and you know, and hopefully the sort of the aesthetic is so rock solid that that, that away you go. But. Um, I, I really feel I know your episodes like the back of my hand and, and we're hopefully very respectful to them and we don't want to suddenly be making a different series but the show sort of and the story evolves because yeah. they get you know they, they're in different places now so it's a really interesting um, setup. and actually the thing of in the second series <clears throat> two things made us think we should have one director one was that uh, we had all the scripts pretty much before we could start before we started shooting so it would have been theoretically possible for one director to prep the whole all six, whereas when you were shooting, yeah, he was still writing ready. four, five, and six. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing is, it just meant that we could crossboard the entire series. So rather than mounting the garrison and then striking it, and then a month or so later mounting it again, yeah. we do we did all so we shot all the Tom Hardy scenes in a week and all the garrison scenes in a couple of days, and it's it's really. We don't have huge amounts of money, so we just put every single penny on screen, and that's the best way to and, do and it. And that's how you get fancy actors as well. You know, if you get pneumonia for a week, you know, and you just shoot Shit every man. single scene from mm. all six episodes in a week, you know, or, or you know, that's how you get to go to fancy locations. You know, you say actually we can do all six episodes in three days. So and then the actor is of... talking with the director. The actor and the director are going on the same journey of from episode one to six, which which is always going to be. So they love that, and, and it means the performances are beautifully, you know, calibrated over all six. So because you shoot it all out of order. Hi there, uh, I'm Sophie, I'm a scriptwriter. I just wanted to know what draws you to a script. Um, obviously, Peaky Blinders is quite unique, and uh, maybe it's a bit of a complicated question, but mm-hmm. is there something specific that, when you read something, stands out to you that makes you want to be a part of it? Uh, gosh, I mean, so many things. You know, um, a lot of scripts you don't get past page 10. Mm-hmm. You know, um, most you don't get past, past page 30, 40. And then there's a lot, you know, there's a fair number of that I get to the end and I kind of go, I definitely want to go and see that movie or that TV show, definitely. That's that. But do I want to spend 18 months making it? And that's the huge thing from a director's point of view 
is it's just a, it's a huge amount of time, a huge, huge amount of time. So you've got to see something and feel something in there that you know is going to keep you going for 18 months. And for me, that's normally, it doesn't really matter. I'm not, I don't really care about genre. I don't really care about date. You know, it's got to be something that speaks on a second level that has some kind of sort of, again, I'm going to start to sound pretentious, but, you know, but just, just something else that you just kind of go, wow, that's, that's interesting. And, that's, you know, and, and, and that is something that I can sort of dig into once you've done the kind of basic scene setting. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, my agents are constantly baffled by what I do or don't like. Because it's, it's, you know, there there's no rule. You know, there, there, it's, just, it's just, you know, so... For me, I'd say character, because uh, in a sense, with a writer, you can... Well, Steve came with a whole shebang just there. But with a writer, you can work on, um, we can say, what a show might be about, and you can share lots of structural t- tricks. But, but in terms of actually being able to write characters who, um, f- however, whatever trick they pull, uh, are, are fully formed and, and leap from the page. I know it's not very scientific way of expressing it but you see it in Peaky although even these tiny characters in, in series 2 there was this character called the Digbeth kid who was a little kid who turns up he has about three lines what, what does he say he says uh, he's got a little wooden gun who made that for you well my mother well she's not really my mother Tommy says but she does what mothers do when he was killed at the end of the episode everyone was heart, you know, in tears because he'd made you love that character in, in, in un, almost under ten words and it, that love of character and being able to, I think, is really, really quite rare. You know, I'm, I'm attracted to the worlds, but, yeah. but the world is also part of the character. So you just read, a, if you read, and it's a great, in the story, and the, it's a powerful narrative, and you're taking on a journey, it doesn't matter what, what, mm. what age it is. Uh, that's what I, I get drawn to. It's just the, the power of a narrative, and the characters are there. And you just read, and I start to see it, if I can start to see it, I know that, ah, I'm, I'm really energised by it. Because you do read stuff and you go, oh, yeah, right, OK. Mm. Yeah, police station. OK. But, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, mm. yeah. but you can get great police stations. I'm not saying that. Mm. But it's got to have something else to it. So you've just got, it's, it's got to be something that just generates an energy when you're reading it. At least that's what I respond to. Can you be a little more specific about what you took into the room when you pitched for the job, visual material, whatever documents you may have developed? I think I just got on the phone with Steve and we got on well and that was it. I think it was sort of... Steve told me a story about the bit that I really... that Steve and I really, really connected on was he said... He and Jamie's alluded to it earlier. He said he wanted this to feel... Because, you know, Steve... This is... You know, Steve's ancestors are all part of this posse. Um, and Steve, you know, used to sit on his uncle's knees or grand, great uncle's knees and hear these stories, you know. And 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 he really wanted to feel like he was that kid just gazing up, you know. And 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 that was the bit that. And then when I told told him about my pathological hate of British period TV, we became best mates. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though, because Steve said before we met you, Steve said, uh, you know, in their minds, they're not living life in slow motion. Yeah. They're, they're living life the same I as us. I do lots of slow motion. In the <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? But, but, and then when you said that sort of thing, I don't yeah. want it to be like it was singing from the same. Sorry, picture. not very helpful. But that's rare. I mean, you know, normally you do have to, you know, normally you do go in there and kind of, you know, bring stuff and you know bring visuals and. But you know, I've done that. It's the projects that have gone well for me are when you just, you know, when you just know and you just make that, you know, and, and you know, you're not dragged through some kind of pitching process. And from our point of view, when we look for directors, it really is: am I connecting with the characters here? 
Because in the end, Tommy Shelby, you're watching, you know, he is the lead character you, you're going to be watching for many, many hours. For the writing, are you going to be able to really be so interesting about one person? Well, Steve is, you know. And in the third series, uh, you know, you see in the trailers us going broader. He's going deeper, really is, in the third series. And, and can you do that if you've got that thing? And for the directors, we just need immediately looking at Otto's work. I can't remember with criminal justice. You're just—it's like you're in the cab with the guy. It's—it's right. it's, you're totally. I'm not just watching it. I'm—I'm I'm completely in there, yeah. which is a, a skill, you know many beautiful tricks and, and craft, bits of craftsmanship. But but really the intention of I'm not watching this. I'm I'm living it. Yeah. Thank you. If you want to hear more about Piggy Blinders and the man behind it, then creator and screenwriter Stephen Knight joined our prestigious Screenwriters Lecture Series in 2014. Listen to the lecture in full on BAFTA Guru.